Welcome back, everyone, to episode five, the last episode of uh, Undercurrent's mini-series on who rules cyberspace. My name is Joyce Hackney. I'm a senior researcher with the International Security Program at Chatham House and the co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, Joyce. Great to be back. Quite emotional that this is already our last episode. It is emotional, Ben. It is emotional. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit more about this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, this is episode five, the last in our series looking at contemporary debates around cyber governance. And throughout this series, we've been trying to find out what a range of different actors and sectors within this space are doing to improve cooperation on regulating cyberspace. We've heard from some fascinating speakers talking from the state perspective, people involved at the United Nations level and in national governments. We've also heard from the private sector, both tech companies and non-tech companies. And we've also heard from people involved in civil society responses to cyberspace. And we've heard how important civil society is in this role as capacity builders, among other things. And so in this episode, we're really sort of trying to tie this all together. We've lined up two really esteemed experts on this debate. And we're going to be thinking about what we've heard and also looking ahead at the UN process, but also beyond to the challenges in the next 10 to 15 years within the kind of cyber agenda. Yeah, Ben, it has really been extremely interesting to uh, record these five episodes and to listen to these different perspectives. Coming into this uh, series or for listeners who haven't been engaged in this debate, you think that there hasn't been real progress achieved. But actually, I heard more positive things than uh, negative things. And yes, there are very big challenges that remain, but I feel that the opportunities are also there. And it's about understanding how to approach those challenges and understanding how the different actors can play together in shaping a cyber governance. So in this episode, I spoke to Kirsten Vineyard, who is the head of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, UNIDIR, and Kirsten is supporting the two chairs who are leading the UN negotiations that we spoke about quite a lot in these episodes. Kirsten reflected on what has changed in the negotiations on cyber governance since she first started taking part in those over 10 years ago. She talked about how can non-state actors engage, if not through the UN, and what roles countries should play in keeping the UN relevant. Who did you speak to, Ben? So I spoke to Chris Painter, who very excitingly was a world first. Uh, He was the first cyber diplomat uh, within the US Department of State, and he's now the president for the GFCE Foundation. And Chris is an expert on all things cyber, and he gave us a really wide-ranging conversation, not just looking at this process, but looking beyond it, at the way that he sees cyberspace developing, the new technologies that are coming, and also how we can make these debates that are often so high level and perhaps niche, how we can make those conversations relevant to just ordinary people going about their daily lives. And in particular, it was really interesting to hear his views on the role that youth can play 
in this space as the people who will be inheriting this new vision of cyberspace that is currently being developed? That sounds fantastic, Ben. Let's have a listen. I'm delighted to be joined today by Kirsten Vineyard, who is the head of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, UNIDIR, advisory team supporting the two chairs leading the UN negotiations on cyberspace. Welcome, Kirsten. It's great to have you on the podcast with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, Kirsten, you have been involved in the states and negotiations for a number of years now, since 2009, if I'm not mistaken, including when states agreed on the 11 voluntary norms it aimed at reaching a stable cyberspace. And these negotiations continue today. What do you think have changed since the beginning of these negotiations and what real impact have they achieved so far? That's a great question, Joyce. I think I'd like to start with a huge shift we've seen over the last decade is the recognition that multi-stakeholder approaches are going to be crucial to our success in dealing with ICTs and international security. You know, the fact is states cannot do this alone. Now, until the 2016-2017 GGE, multi-stakeholder was a bad word. And so that kind of widely shared view that we're dealing with issues of international security and security is or was the domain reserve of the state. Now, in the past few years, we've really seen this uptick. This, it's more than an uptick. It's, it's really a recognition that the roles and responsibilities of stakeholders other than states is crucial. And that's not just in norms and norm development and norm implementation, but also in capacity building and cooperation efforts. And I think this comes in part from a a recognition that the private sector in particular has roles and responsibilities in this space. For many states, that's a new relationship that they're starting to navigate. Some are, are more adept at this than others. It's um, had its awkward moments, I think, as some states are, are recognizing that, in fact, there are private sector or global corporations that in this sphere are, are more influential and perhaps more powerful than state mechanisms are in some states, which I think can be very daunting. And yet that should also motivate us to collaborate more, more closely with the private sector. But recognition that multi-stakeholder is important uh, component of the solution is that recognition is only the first step, right? We're gonna have to adapt our processes and our frameworks to allow and incentivize and strengthen multi-stakeholder cooperation. It's interesting that you mentioned that now there has, you know, there is a recognition that states cannot do this alone, that private sector play uh, an important role. And in some aspects, private sector can lead more influential processes. And yet, you know, in spite of this recognition, we do see that the current negotiations remain largely exclusive of these actors, the private sector, mm -hmm. the uh, non-governmental organizations, the academia, etc. Do you see that this will change in the, in the near future? And if not, how can these actors contribute uh, in shaping cyberspace, if not through these uh, negotiations processes? You know, I, I completely agree that, about this important role that non-state actors play, and particularly civil society. All actors have, all responsible actors, whether they're individuals or states or organizations, um, have, I think, roles and also responsibilities. But we don't all have the same responsibilities. And, 
in the international negotiations in these discussions at the UN, for the first time, both processes, the group of governmental experts, as well as the open-ended working group, they had consultative processes, which is super exciting. Um, it's, again, a recognition that other stakeholders, both other states who aren't necessarily participating, but other organizations like regional organizations, civil society, other actors are partners in this. They have views on this. But you are also right that these negotiations are state-centric. Um, this is, in fact, the system we are in. It's called the United Nations. It's not the United Nations and friends and United Nations and other actors. Civil society and others are doing their job. They are bringing knowledge to the table. They are giving briefings. They are producing publications. They are socializing these issues in new foras and other foras. They're bringing uh, new communities, getting new communities engaged. Um, they're serving as a, as a conduit to new communities. They are doing capacity building. They're doing lobbying. They're pushing. They're monitoring. The value that non-state actors bring to the process that knowledge, the skills, the experience, domain-specific expertise, practitioners' perspectives, even that, I don't like this term, but the watchdog function that civil society can play, that helps to encourage transparency and accountability of national commitments. So while they might not have a seat at the negotiating table, they are very influential about what happens at the table. And sometimes perhaps less energy should be spent on debating who should be at the table or who has a right to be at the table and actually being influential where you can be influential. Sometimes getting a seat at the table means you've given up something to be invited to the table. And sometimes civil society actors, we need them to do particularly that watchdog function, to push for transparency, to hold states accountable. And sometimes if you're too close to the process, you lose that ability or the credibility or the legitimacy to do that. So it's a balancing act. Now, the negotiations won't go on forever. So while it might be we've moved from a consultation process to a state-centric negotiation process, but the fact is there will be some form of regular conversation and dialogue and implementation and capacity building that goes forth from these processes. And we will need our non-state other stakeholder partners and actors involved in that. So I think sometimes we overly focus on the negotiations as only a small step in this process. Do you see, in your opinion, in the future, the non-state actors playing different roles in the, in the process. For example, the private sector are more engaged, whereas the civil society are doing or playing this role that you talked about of like the monitoring, the capacity building, pushing for transparency, etc. Do you see that diversification of the roles manifesting in how states engage with some non-state actors rather than others? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, there's a big push for whatever dialogue processes come out going forward, that there be a multi-stakeholder component. Now, I think the lowest bar for that component makes it sound like you can have a 90-minute session where civil society actors brief states, which is a more traditional, unfortunately, more traditional way things sometimes get done in the UN. I think in this field in particular, and we saw this at the December multi-stakeholder consultations um, that were held at the UN on the margins of this process. 
we saw that the value and the knowledge and the very specific knowledge that other actors bring to the table. And I think because of that, it will be not a token form of participation. There will be active participation, particularly there are state champions for this. They are going to bring along their partners from civil society or industry to talk about here are things we are doing together on capacity building. Here are public-private partnerships or arrangements. We're working on vulnerability disclosure. I mean, many of the norms from 2015 cannot be implemented without cooperation with another community. So states, as they talk about how they're implementing, as they talk about best practice and all of that, they won't be the only voices in the room. They will have to bring along their partners to the table, either as part of their delegation or in a hybrid format or somewhere where that collaboration can be showcased and shared and built upon. So we've talked about, you know, who would, should, will be on the table and how these conversations will continue. And this year, the UN is celebrating its 75th anniversary. It's a big institution facing big challenges, including the challenge we're discussing today of responsible and effective governance of the internet and digital technology and having this sort of inclusive approach doing that. What role do you see for the UN going forward and how can we ensure it remains relevant? That's a a very big question. The Secretary General has put a a strong priority on digital technologies, and that was, of course, before COVID. We saw it in his agenda for disarmament, the fact that he established a high-level panel on digital cooperation, and now we have his digital roadmap in front of us. And I think COVID has just shown that he had foresight in doing so, that, that digital cooperation, the digital divide, digital trust and security, those are all issues that cut across every issue that we have on the table at the United Nations. So the Secretary General has shown leadership in this. He's taken a commitment to retooling and reskilling the organization as he can with the resources that he has to prepare internally for this continuing relevance of the organization. Now, that said, how can we ensure that it remains relevant? Well, ultimately, that's in the hand of member states. I think sometimes we're very picky. We kind of pick and choose when we talk about the United Nations as a thing versus the fact that it's the sum of its parts. Member states control the budgets. They decide which issues are discussed in which fora. They determine mandates, the timelines, all of that. And ultimately, it's member states who have kind of their collective feet on the gas pedal. They control how fast or slow we go on these issues, right? And how this issue is prioritized over others. The global pandemic has raised awareness of our dependencies and our vulnerabilities on digital technologies. It has made our digital divides excruciatingly clear. It has underscored our trust in digital technologies, both in the, well, not just both, in the technologies themselves, in the designers of technologies and developers and vendors, the supply chains, the operators and the users. So we have this awakening that we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose. Um, and this is an opportunity for member states to really think about that. And just uh, following up on that, Despite this awakening of governance and the organization as a whole, this goes hand in hand with that value of working in authentic ways with civil society and industry on the range of issues dealing with the organization. 
you know, the fact is the UN is that state-centric entity, as I said before. And rather than see this as a limitation and try to shoehorn participation into state-centric processes further than states are comfortable than it going, we can also choose to let this inspire us to find new ways of partnering, you know, at the local or national or regional levels. And so rather than trying to bring all conversations to the UN, an organization that is dealing with multiple crises on all fronts, both man-made and natural and budgetary, we can look at how we could take the international security conversation to other communities and other fora. We need to go to their conferences, we need to learn about their networks, we need to meet them where they are, rather than trying to bring everything to the table in New York. And I think that is a very suitable way to end this conversation with you, Kirsten, today. It's important to understand the system in which we're working, understand its limitations, and as you said, think of innovative and new ways for partnering. What's really important is to make progress and different actors have to think about how can this happen, whether within the UN or outside of it. So thank you very much, Kirsten, for your time today and lovely speaking to you. It's always great to talk with you, Joyce. Thank you very much for the invitation. Okay, so for this next interview, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Painter. Chris is the president of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise and an associate fellow in the International Security Programme at Chatham House. Among other things, Chris currently serves as a commissioner on the Global Commission for the Stability of Cyberspace and, incredibly excitingly, was the first cyber diplomat. Chris is a globally recognised leader on cyber policy, cyber diplomacy, cyber security and means of combating cybercrime. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. So the internet increasingly has become ubiquitous in the daily life of a large proportion of the population around the world. But the terms of this debate that we've been having, that we've been looking into this week on cyberspace governance, often seem out of step with that public. How do you think we can improve public awareness and concern for cyber governance? Yeah, I think this is one of the enduring problems. I've been doing cyber now for over 27 years. And for almost that entire time, we've been trying to raise the awareness outside of the specialists who do this with the public and policymakers and the technical community and others, really get them all to understand some of these issues. And it's tough because what happens is the public, I think, focuses on big events. You have a big hack, you have a big denial of service attack or one of these things. Mm -hmm. And there's public attention for a short period of time, then it goes away again. And even among policymakers, I think one of the challenges we have, very senior policymakers, they still think of cybersecurity and even some of the cyber governance issues as a technical issue and not a core national security, foreign policy, economic security issue. So we need to change that. And it's changing over time. We need to do more than the, as good as they are, but you know, these cyber awareness weeks, cyber awareness months we have in the US, October is cyber awareness month. Those are great, but we need to do something to really get it into the core of society. So we thought about one time in fires, we had Smokey the Bear, right? So you had someone that some people could focus on. Can we come up with something that is more iconic, that is linked to culture more, so people understand that these debates actually affect them? And I think it goes to one of the, the core issues in this area, that this is more than just 
the government experts who are negotiating in New York or at the UN, or more than the technical experts or the companies who are doing this. It's really all of us. And we need to come together and bridge these gaps between the technical community, the policy community, bring other sectors in, bring more women into this area, make sure we're reaching around the world to make sure that more countries and populations are involved in these debates. I think we're making progress. Uh, I think initiatives like the Chatham House Initiative and others are trying to get more people involved, and I think that's good. Uh, It's going to take us some time, though. Just as a follow-up to that, I'd I'd really be interested to know your thoughts on, on what you think the role of the public within this debate can sort of tangibly be. I mean, one thing that's emerged to me as a as a non-expert on cyber issues, um, as I've been doing these interviews this week, is that a lot of the solutions and the policies that are being discussed are quite kind of high level and technocratic. And they don't necessarily, as far as I can see, translate into sort of actions by individuals going about their daily lives. So I just wondered if you had a view on what the role of the public should be so there's a couple of things I see. One, you know, in terms of actually the cybersecurity risks to people, there's a lot that people can do to protect themselves, but they have to understand why that's important, why this is actually vital to their lives and the steps that they could take. And there's lots of steps individuals can and should take. But also in the larger policy debates, I think you can make that argument for almost any policy debate that the policymakers right. do their thing. You know, do people, the general population really understand nuclear policy? They really <laughs> understand health policy. Let's take the example of health policy, more now than six months ago, right? Because it's raised people's awareness and people understand that these decisions are being made in their capitals and around the world affect them. So I do think there is a, a value in having the public involved. And the public is not a you know monolithic thing, just like business is not a monolithic thing or civil right. society is not a monolithic thing. There are lots of different actors and speakers. And I think one of the things having the public more involved does is make it less a technical issue and more a small p political issue and more of a priority. And it helps, I think, undergird the debate that leaders understand this is an important issue because they're getting demand from the public to do something to make sure that we have a stable cyberspace, that we can enjoy the economic and social growth, and that a lot of the threats we see are are blunted or at least avoided, and that we have this long-term stability. You know, I don't expect members of the public to participate in every debate. But you know, members of the public could be very broad, too. And, and I, that's why I think one of the core things that we try to do, and, and I do it with my own organization, with the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, is to make sure we have stakeholders from across the community, businesses, governments, and civil society. And civil society is a very large segment, and academia, too. So that's, those are representatives of the public. But I think getting more in the public consciousness is, is important for even high-level policymaking. Lots, lots of folks have used these phrases, we need a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor for us to become aware. I hope that's not true. I don't think that's true. I, I think that as we get more and more reliant on these technologies, that people will understand this is important to them and we don't need a disaster mm-hmm. uh, to really focus folks' attention. And so I think if we think that way, that's really counterproductive. One group of stakeholders within this discussion, which maybe we've not given much attention to this week are younger generations. Young people are going to be the most affected by the outcomes of this governance debate that we're having right now. And yet they don't often seem to sort of have a seat at the table. While conversely, you have increasingly this kind of recognition that 
some public officials, lawmakers, maybe aren't as in touch with the latest sort of technological developments and internet developments as was kind of revealed when um, Mark Zuckerberg was interviewed by the US Senate uh, last year. What do you think can be done to better engage young people in this space? And, and what role do you think young people can play? Well, certainly as I get older, everyone's looking younger these days. So uh, I'd, I'd say it is really important because, you know, this is this is axiomatic, but the, the youth of today are going to be the decision makers of tomorrow. So we need to make sure they're aware of these issues. I do think there's a bit of a disconnect. I, I'll, I'll tell a couple of stories. One, the UK, Foreign Minister Haig back, I don't know, like maybe eight years ago, started a series of conferences that's been called the London Process. And he had all the government and industry and other policymakers in this room talking over three days or two days. And they had a youth forum where the youth forum was happening in a different place. And at the end, the youth forum came and they gave their report out of what was going on. And I I remember this because it was so striking. The person who was chosen by the youth forum, the the youth, uh, to give the report got up and said, I don't know what you old people keep talking about cyberspace. You know, it's part, it's really for us, it's our daily lives. It's what we live. Mm. And so- and so I think that's one thing that we have to generationally think about. It's not just cyberspace. This is what folks more and more are depending on and living in. The other is, uh, I think, a very positive story. I've been going to the IGF, the Internet Governance Forum, for many years. And there is a youth group, a youth leaders group within that forum. And I've spoken to that group several times. And I've really been impressed at how involved those folks are, how much they care about these issues, and how much they're really looking forward to taking a leadership role on these issues and having an impact. And I think that is important because I think they realize this is going to be theirs at some point, not too long from now. Then, you know, there's other initiatives like the South School for Internet Governance, which looks at not youth, youth, but you know, young bureaucrats, young people in governments who are moving up the chain and how to get them more involved. So I think there's some good initiatives involved, but you're right. We have not done a good job, I think, of really bringing youth into the equation as much as we need to. It goes back to your first question on public involvement, too. I think we have to make clear why this is going to impact them. They're going to be the ones that are going to inherit this. They're going to be the ones that are going to be calling the shots. They're going to be the ones that are going to be dealing with all the mistakes that we might make or the possible threats and challenges we have. So we need to make sure that they're involved in the conversation. And I, you know, as I said, I think more and more we see attempts to do that in lots of different institutions, and that's good. But we have to redouble those efforts, I think. Thinking many years ahead now, sort of 10 to 15 years into the future, what do you think cyberspace is going to look like? And over that period, what do you think the kind of key threats or challenges to stability in cyberspace are going to be? What's emerging that we should be concerned about? I think it's a complex question, so it's a complex answer. First, you know, predicting what things are going to look like 5, 10, 15 years out is almost impossible. I remember talking to folks who do a lot of analysis just generally, and they said sometimes they can predict trends 10 years out. For the Internet, it's hard for them to predict more than three years out. You know, so, and I think that's true because the technology changes so quickly. But I do think that we will become ever more dependent on these technologies. They'll become far more ubiquitous. They're ubiquitous now, but they'll become even more ubiquitous. That'll be driven by things like the Internet of Things, where essentially the Internet will be seamless in our daily lives. It won't be like we necessarily be signing on to systems like this. They'll just be part and parcel of what we have. Well, see the continued growth of mobile Internet and mobile technology, particularly in the developing world, that's going to be more and more how we use the Internet, how we connect with each other. And there'll be more services that are going to be offered. So, so all of those are good things. And 
I think will really help us in a big way. But as you said, there are significant challenges. And I think in some ways it's easier to delineate what the challenges are than what the future of the technology is. I think first, we're still going to have a persistent digital divide, both in terms of access to these technologies, but also in terms of the policy issues, you know, who's involved in these policy debates. This is one thing we're trying to address very strongly now. What the Global Forum for Cyber Expertise on Cyber Expertise is working very hard to try to match developed countries and stakeholders and private sector and civil society with countries who are just beginning in this area or who are trying to develop policies. And we need to really focus on Africa, Asia, Latin America. There are lots of, of folks who really you know, are still just embarking on this journey and need to be able not just to have the technology and the access, but also have the ability to, to do the policy and participate in these big debates that are happening in New York and other places. So that that's the capacity building is an important part to address that. But I fear we're still going to have this divide that we still won't people will not be all connected, and that's a real problem I think for our societies. And that also goes to something you know the UN has these development goals that are about water and food and access, cyber security and connectivity. I think undergird all of those. You know we need to do those well to achieve those long-term development goals. So that that's one. The other is I think we're going to continue to see this struggle, this fight over how the internet is governed. You know, this is not new, but there is this debate between countries who are more repressive, who want to see states in control and control information. You know, it's no surprise that we talk about cybersecurity, but some of these states talk about information security because they're trying to control information. And content is a really important thing. And they view information sometimes, and even the internet is a threat to their sovereignty. So I think we're going to see those debates continue. And that might result in more of a fragmentation or balkanization of the internet, which I think would be unfortunate. Now, I think you know, we're working against that too, but I think that that's another, another big issue. And the third one is really is a big one, which is the you know, biggest challenge we face is continued threats, state threats, non-state threats to cyberspace, the you know, cyber crime for non-state threats, but all the state threats we're seeing where the internet is being continually militarized and used as a military platform. There are times when that makes sense, and it's not surprising that that evolution has happened. But without rules in place, without understanding the place, that could be a very, very destabilizing turn of events. And I think that's going to continue. And so that puts an incredible premium on making sure that we continue to work on norms and confidence-building measures and a stability framework taking us into the future. This is something the global commission I was on looked at. This is something that we work on in almost everything I, I've done in, in other areas. So it's that stability element is going to be incredibly important going forward, because if that doesn't happen, it becomes the internet or these network technologies more generally become sort of a free-for-all, a, a wild, wild web, sort of, if you will. And, and that's so important because that is the foundation to the positive things. You know, security is not an end to itself. It is a foundation for us, all the positive things we want to achieve. Uh, and the threats have only become greater over the years. As we become more dependent, the threats, threat actors become cleverer, it becomes harder to stop them. And one thing that we've been bad at, we've been good at starting to talk about these rules of the road in the UN and other places, and that's great. But we haven't been good at holding folks accountable. So when they break those rules, and we've seen a lot of this recently, not petty, uh, wanna cry, there's been election interference. We need to be much better acting as a global community, coming together collectively, and making sure that we're calling out that behavior and deterring that behavior. You know, there's been some good examples. Recently, the EU imposed sanctions, agreed, you know, got an agreement in all the EU countries to impose sanctions for some malicious conduct. Great. 
We need to do more of that. We need to come together and understand how important this issue is and make sure there's accountability and consequences for the bad actors. Thank you for that horizon scanning for us. I suppose my final question is, are you optimistic that the processes that are currently underway to improve sort of international governance on cyberspace, are you optimistic that those processes can deliver the stability that we need to mitigate those threats that you outlined? Well, you know, as a former prosecutor, you'd think I'd be pessimistic, but I'm actually a, a pretty optimistic person. And I do think, you know, I compare this to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago, when you couldn't even get a senior official's attention on these issues. You talked about cybersecurity and their eyes would glaze over and they'd run out of the room. But now it has become more of a political priority. We're seeing national strategies around the world. We're seeing more attention. Are we close to where we need to be? Absolutely not. Do I have hope that we can get there? I do. And I think certainly the, some of these processes going on, there's major geopolitical divides around the world. There's going to be fights about this. There's fights about how international law applies, You know what these kind of consequences and accountability is going to be, uh, what governance is. We're, those are going to persist for a while. But I think we're on the right path now. And I think the thing we need to do is redouble those efforts, have more forums, not less, get more people involved in this discussion, really reach out around the world. Capacity building, as I said before, is one of the foundational elements. But even beyond that, get more folks involved in this discussion because really it is critical to our future. Chris Painter, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. Thanks. So that is it for this episode of Who Rules Cyberspace. And indeed, that's a wrap on the series as a whole. We really hope that you've enjoyed the five episodes in this mini-series. I've personally found it incredibly fascinating. It's an area that I haven't done a lot of work on in the past and speaking to such a wide range of actors throughout the week has, has been really, really enlightening and also kind of encouraging that there are so many amazing people working in this space and trying to bring some kind of order to what is an in- incredibly messy cyberspace realm. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, I would definitely encourage you to go back to listen on whichever podcast podcast app you're using to hear this or on the Chatham House website. Just search Who Rules Cyberspace and you'll find it there. If you'd like to hear more about the work that Joyce and the team in the International Security Programme are doing, then you can follow them on Twitter at Chatham House ISR. And if you want to find out more about the work of Chatham House more broadly, you can visit our new website at www.chathamhouse.org. Finally, we must end with with a few thank yous, of course. Firstly, to Esther Naylor from the International Security Programme. Thank you very much for all your work putting this series together and for providing editorial support to Joyce and myself. Thanks also to Jamie Reed, the undercurrent sound editor. He's been a rock throughout this whole crazy 2020 year, which has <laughs> seen so much podcast output from us on the feed. So thank you, Jamie, for being as reliable as ever. And thanks also to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their support of the Cyberspace for All project. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some regular episodes of Undercurrents. Our normal programming will resume, as it were. And thank you for your continued support of the podcast. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton, and you've been listening to Who Rules Cyberspace, a mini-series from Undercurrents. <laughs> <laughs>